I need to get better about timing when I walk up here. Our passage for this morning comes from Esther chapter 9. I invite you to turn there with me. Esther chapter 9. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19 this morning. And so as you're turning there, I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. Just by way of reminder, uh, Esther and Mordecai now have uh, issued a new edict to rescue the Jews that's going to allow them to be delivered from Haman's armies, uh, if you will, who are coming to destroy them. So here we get to read about how that edict um, went out and what the result was. So reading now from the book of Esther, chapter 9, beginning with verse 1, hear now the word of God. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshadatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Poratha, and Adalia, and Aridatha, and Parmashta, and Arasai, and Eridai, and Vaisatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed seventy-five thousand of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the thirteenth day of the month of Adar, and on the fourteenth day they rested, and made that day a feast and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the thirteenth day and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day of gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. Well, this is God's holy, 
inspired and inerrant word. And may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Oh God, we rejoice this morning that you have given us this book that we call the Bible. And we think now especially of the book of Esther, Lord. We pray that uh, you would open this book to us this morning. And that you would speak through it and that you would send your spirit to work these truths deep within our hearts. And that they would change how we love you and that they would change how we live. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but I uh, sometimes um, I tend to spend a lot of time listening to uh, lectures. Um, That sounds really boring and nerdy, and it is, uh, but that's what I like to do. And uh, one of my favorite guys to listen to, I'm sure is no surprise to you, is a guy named R.C. Sproul. Uh, He was one of the first guys that I started listening to back in high school when I was contemplating the idea of going in to the ministry. I spent long hours going back and forth in a field in a tractor, running a disc ripper and and a cultivator and those sorts of things. Well, not a cultivator, more of a chisel plow, but anyway. So I spent a lot of time where I just had nothing else to do except listen to stuff. So that's what I did. And I listened to R.C. Sproul quite a bit. And I remember one lecture that he gave, one lesson that he gave, was on the subject of truth. And one of the things that he said that's really stuck with me is he said, you know, Christians should bend over backwards to be people who keep their promises. Now, Christians should bend over backwards to be people of the truth, people who keep their word. Now, Sproul wasn't saying that there's never a situation where Christians may be permitted to lie. Uh, He was a believer in the noble lie, which is a subject for another day. But he did say that in your general life circumstances as a Christian, that we should be known as people who keep our promises and people who are people of the truth. We keep our word. And that stuck with me, and I've, I've tried to do that. I haven't done it perfectly. Uh, my wife will attest, I have not kept my word perfectly, nor do I keep my word perfectly. But I try to, because I, I believe that's very biblical. And try as I might, I don't always keep my word, and I don't always keep my promises. And maybe that's something that, that many of you can identify with this morning. But in the scriptures, when we turn to the word... I'm sure sure most of you see this coming, right? There is one person who does keep their word 100% of the time. There is one in the scriptures who keeps his promises, regardless of how much amount of time elapses between when he makes the promise and when the promise comes to fruition. And that is God. And in our passage this morning here in in Esther chapter 9, we are going to see this. We're going to see God keep a promise that he made to his people a thousand years before it comes to fruition in our text. We're going to see God keep his promises. And so we can see that teaching unfold in a couple of ways. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 9, we have the recording of the Jews being delivered. And then the author explains how the Jews were delivered or the means And then finally, we have the end or the result. So deliverance means end. Nice, straight uh, taking through of this text. We're going to see that God keeps his promises. 
And specifically, we get to see one specific promise that he keeps when there's a thousand years of time in between. So I'm excited to do that with you this morning. Let's look at our text. Uh, Beginning in chapter 9, this is taking place right after Esther and Mordecai, as I mentioned before, send out an edict. And you remember that Haman, one of his plans as the enemy of the Jews was to to enact this edict. He bribed the king. This edict was going to go out and it was going to destroy all the Jews. It said that on a specific day of the month, anyone could go out and slaughter Jews and it would be completely acceptable under Persian law. So all the Jews were going to be destroyed and all their stuff would be taken. That was Haman's plan. And the edict was signed, went into effect, couldn't be erased because an edict of the Persian kings cannot be reversed according to the law. So the Jews found themselves in a pickle even after Haman got killed because they had to do something. And so Esther and Mordecai concoct this plan. They put another edict together. And this edict we read about last week, which says that the Jews were going to be allowed under the government and with the government's support to be able to defend themselves, to arm themselves, to gather together, and to fight back. And I suppose they could have done this on their own without uh, Esther and Mordecai's edict, but it wouldn't have worked because they wouldn't have had the support of the government. And so now it's going to work. This is actually feasible that they can defend themselves. And so that's what happens. Now we read in Esther chapter 9, verse 1, what happens. And here we get to see God's deliverance at work. Now on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day of the month, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them. Now you can see here that this term, enemy of the Jews, is being used again. That term's always been used just to talk about Haman himself. But now it's being applied not simply to Haman, but actually to the people who are trying to accomplish what Haman wanted them to do. So Haman here, in a certain sense, has got some followers. He was able to incite, if you will, a kind of army against the Jews. And so because they're carrying out the wishes of Haman, the text here attributes Haman's name to them. The the, the name enemy of the Jews is essentially the Old Testament equivalent of the word antichrist. It's a strong title. You don't want that title. That's a bad title. You're a bad guy if you're an enemy of the Jews. And that's who these people are. They represent Haman's armies. They're coming against the Jews and they think they're going to win. They think they're going to get mastery over them, but... Right there, middle of verse 1 or toward the end, the reverse occurred. The reverse occurred. Ironic twist here. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Now, how did they do that? Well, they did it in a couple of ways. We're told the Jews gathered together, strengthened numbers. Uh, The fear of them was in all of the people. So the people of Persia were were afraid of them. They were respectful of them. They could see that God was at work among them, like we talked about last week. Uh, And not only that, but they also had, the the Jews had the help of the royal agents and the Persian government. You can see that the the royal agents, uh, the satraps of the provinces and the governors, they were all on the Jews' side. They had them all. This is why the Mordecai and Esther's edict was necessary. They needed the help of these people to arm them and to give them the ability to defend themselves. And so that's the third reason. The fourth reason that the Jews were able to do this is because Mordecai was well respected among all of the Persian governors. We're told Mordecai was great in the king's house 
And his fame was spread throughout all the provinces, and he was becoming more and more powerful. So there's a certain respect that goes for powerful people. And Mordecai was now becoming second in command, clothed with the king's robes we saw last week. He had the royal crown on his head. I mean, Mordecai is no guy you want to mess with. And so the governors were all on his side because this, is, this edict was his doing, and they respected his authority. And so the Jews here, then they, they achieve this deliverance. And notice, as we talked about last week, this deliverance is not supernatural. Right? This is a very ordinary kind of deliverance. You know, if God wanted to save the Jews, he very easily could have done other things that he's done in the Old Testament. He could have sent an angel of death to come in and kill all of Haman's armies. He's done that before. God could have sent angels to surround the Jewish people, to protect them. He didn't do that either. Now, God, in Esther, uses ordinary means. And this is something we'll focus on a whole lot more next week. This is why Esther is such a profoundly helpful book for us in our own day. But God here is delivering the Jews in an ordinary way. Now, let's look a little bit more carefully at the means that God uses to deliver them. We've seen that they're delivered. Their enemies don't win. But how does that actually happen? We see this here in verses 5 through 16. And verse 5 sums up the whole section. Verse 5 says, The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. So how is it that the Jews gained mastery over everyone? Well, in addition to the things we talked about before, it was also because they used self-defense. They took their swords and they fought back and they protected themselves and their families. And look at how the text records this here. Verse 6, we're told that in Susa, that is in the capital city where Mordecai and Esther are, where the king is, In Susa, they destroyed 500 men. That's a pretty decent amount. The next day in Susa, they kill another 300 men who came against them. And then we're told in verse 16 that if you count up every attacker who was killed throughout all the provinces of the empire, all 127 provinces of Persia, a total of about 75,000 attackers were slain by the Jews. I mean, that's a pretty serious war, especially in one day. That's a serious battle that the Jews fought there. But notice how noble that they are when they do this. And the text hints at this here when it says that in verse 10, for example, that the, the Jews killed the 300 men or the 500 men in Susa. They killed the 10 sons of Haman, which we'll talk about in a minute. And they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And then later on, we're told that they killed the 75,000, but they laid no hands on the plunder in verse 16. So here, what what the author of Esther is trying to tell us is that the Jews were not engaged in a kind of bloodthirsty, malicious frenzy where they were just happy to go around killing people who they didn't like. That was not what's going on here. Rather, what the Jews are doing is they are practicing a very disciplined defense of their lives and the lives of their families. And when they slay their enemies, they didn't take their enemies' stuff. 
They slayed their attackers, and they left their enemies' houses, their gold, their silver, their livestock, their slaves, whatever else they had. They didn't touch any of the plunder. In other words, this act of defense that the Jews engage in here is purely for the purpose of their own protection. There's nothing malicious going on here. The Jews act nobly. Now, that leads us then to address something that I think is a little bit of an elephant in the room in this text. Maybe you're thinking about it, maybe you're not thinking about it. But the question comes up in light of texts like this, as well as other places in the Old Testament, about this whole ethical issue regarding the taking of life. And in particular, what I'm, what I'm wondering about is a little bit is this idea of the taking of life in necessary self-defense. Right? Because the reason why this question comes up is that in, in a lot of, well, not in a lot, but in some Christian circles, among some believers, in an effort to be genuinely faithful to the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, the idea is, well, Christians are never permitted in any situation to take the life of another person. And the reason for that is because uh, Christians should value life so much that they would never take it no matter what happens. Now that position out there is what's called pacifism. It's the idea Christians should never take another life. War is completely illegitimate, no self-defense, no capital punishment, no any kind of taking of human life ever intentionally. That's pacifism. Now, one of the things that's tricky when we come to the scriptures and when we come to the commandment, you shall not kill, is we have to sort of distinguish a little bit between the different types of killing. Because not every type of taking a life from someone is entirely the same. Just to give you an example for a second, think about this. There is a huge difference between premeditated murder, right, so planning to assassinate uh, Kennedy. Okay, that's premeditated murder. That's pretty serious. We can recognize that category, right? Premeditated murder. Premeditated murder, though, is very different from if you're driving your car on the street and you accidentally hit a kid on a bike and the child dies. Now, both of those, in a certain sense, are killing. Both of those, you're taking the life of somebody by your action. But we all recognize, just intuitively, if nothing else, that that is not the same thing. Accidentally killing someone, or what we would call today involuntary manslaughter, is not the same as premeditated murder. So there are different kinds of killing that we all recognize. We can talk about murder, we can talk about uh, 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 involuntary manslaughter... Uh, we can talk about capital punishment, which is another kind of killing that's not the same as the other two, because capital punishment is a, a chief punishment executed by the civil government. That's not really murder, and that's not really involuntary manslaughter. That's a, a different category. We've also got war, right? soldiers killing enemy soldiers to protect a nation. Well, that, we wouldn't really call that murder. We wouldn't call that involuntary manslaughter. We wouldn't call that capital punishment. That's a different category in itself. Right? And so we've also got then self-defense as another category where it seems like, well, that doesn't seem to be quite the same. Right? So when we are dealing with the question of the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, 
you have to recognize right off the bat that there are different kinds of killing, different categories. And we can't lump them all together as simply as the pacifist does. In fact, if we turn to the Westminster Larger Catechism, which is, of course, a confessional document for this church, and, and, and of course, we believe that it's a faithful, accurate summary of the teachings of Scripture. In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 136, when it's sort of exegeting the Sixth Commandment and explaining what it means that you shall not kill, it explains that there are three primary exceptions to this commandment. That is, there are three different kinds of killing that are not applicable under the commandment you shall not kill. And those three are public justice, or capital punishment, lawful war, so soldiers fighting in a battle, and thirdly, necessary defense, so self-defense. So we can see right with the Westminster divines, or the theologians that put the catechism together, they're recognizing that in Scripture, the commandment you shall not kill does not apply to these three situations. Now, do they say that because they just, you know, they wanted to justify whatever they wanted to do? Or they're just making it up? No. The divines were very, very wise. They were smart theologians. And the reason why they brought out these three exceptions is because they show that these exceptions are profoundly biblical. And we can see them. We can see them in Scripture. So, for example, if you take a look at Genesis chapter 9, you don't have to turn there. But in Genesis chapter 9, we are told in the Noahic Covenant that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now, what that means is it's saying if someone is seeking to take someone's life, if someone sheds the blood of another man, then that person, that killer, has forfeited the right to his own life. Why? Well, Genesis 9 explains. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, because man is created in the image of God. So the murderer forfeits the right to his own life because the person who he has murdered is so valuable because that murdered person is created in the image of God. So when the pacifist comes along and says, you know what, guys, uh, life is so important that Christians should never take a life, Genesis 9 seems to suggest something else. Genesis 9 suggests that because life is so valuable, the murderer has forfeited the right to his own life and is therefore worthy of execution. Now, this has profound implications for a number of other things, but as we think about what the Jews are are dealing with here in Esther chapter 9 and try to sort of bring all of this in, what the Jews are doing here is they are exercising a self-defense because the murderers that are coming upon them have forfeited the right to their own lives because they are seeking to kill them. And so what the Jews have found themselves in is they are in a position, not where they're bloodthirsty, not where they're just seeking to do whatever they want or because they are in some kind of malicious rage, but rather the Jews are in a position where they, their lives are being threatened and they have nothing else that they can do. It is a necessary thing that they must do to defend their lives. It's what the catechism calls 
necessary defense. See, self-defense, using lethal means of self-defense especially, does not give us the right to just do whatever we want. We just go around killing people for no reason. But what the scripture does teach is that necessary defense is not unchristian. Necessary defense is not something that we should avoid or something that's evil. The scripture provides all kinds of examples where the biblical characters are using this as a means to defend themselves as well as to defend their families. Indeed, uh, classical Christian ethics points to Ezekiel chapter 33. And in Ezekiel 33, we read that if a watchman, that is someone who's in a tower in a city, and his job is to sort of uh, analyze the landscape to see enemy armies coming. And if he sees an enemy army, he needs to warn everybody. Uh, in Ezekiel 33, we're told that if one of those watchmen fails to warn his people that an enemy army is coming, then that watchman has forfeited the right to his own life. In other words, if the watchman fails to warn everyone that an enemy army is coming, he has become an accomplice with the enemy army. And he is guilty of what they do. And so for the classical Christian ethic, the idea is that not only is using lethal means of self-defense something that is permissible, but at times it might even be a duty if it's within your power. And so the reason why the Jews are exercising self-defense here, and not only self-defense, but lethal self-defense, is because it is permitted in Scripture. And it is not something that is anti-Christian. Now, this is something that's, you know, there's a lot of questions that come up with regard to this, right? And we don't have time to go through all of the details and all of the different venues of the ethics of this, okay? That's just way too complicated for, for dealing with it in a sermon. But the point is here. The Jews are not sinning when they slay 75,000 attackers, And how do we know that? Well, not only from looking at the rest of Scripture, but remember, this means that the Jews slaying their enemies is God's deliverance for them. He has orchestrated all of this. He has provided the edict of Esther and Mordecai that has allowed them to do this. And this is the means that God is using to deliver his people in this particular historical situation. And the reason why that's important is because, again, this is an ordinary means. This is ordinary. This is not supernatural. This is not angels from heaven. This is not the angel of death. This is ordinary. And we'll talk more about, like I said, the ordinary means next time when we're together next week. All right, so that leads us then to the very end here, which is verse uh, uh, 17. So we have the deliverance. God delivers his people. We have a description of the means of how God delivers his people namely through their exercise here of self-defense. And then in verse 17, we have the end. Here's the result. This is key. This is where we see the lesson that God keeps his promises. Pay attention. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. That is all of this, all these events. And on the 14th day, the Jews rested and made that day a feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Now, the language that the author is using here is not at all random. 
This is very uh, important language. Uh, I want to read for you from Exodus chapter 17. There's a couple of verses there. This is a prophecy that God makes to Moses. Listen to what God says. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses said, and a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And remember why that's important. Haman was a descendant of Amalek. Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. They were supposed to be wiped out by King Saul. King Saul didn't do it. Haman shows up in Persia. He's second in command. He's a living representation of the fact that God's promises have not come to pass. And yet God promises in Exodus that he will wipe out Amalek. In fact, he also says it in Deuteronomy 25, where he says, Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you, in the land that your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So now that Haman and Haman's ten sons have been cut off, his line has been destroyed, the line of Amalek has been wiped out, and that the armies of Haman have been wiped out, all 75,000 soldiers. Now, in verse 17 and 18... The Jews rested. And indeed, if we were to look down at verse 22, it says that the Jews rested from their enemies. Identical construction with, Hebrews, or with Deuteronomy 25, where God says that when he destroys Amalek, the Jews will have rest from their enemies. See, this is not just random prophecy. Not just... Just a, a sort of, oh, look, the words happen to a line. No, the author of Esther is doing this on purpose. He is using the same language of Deuteronomy because the author of Esther is showing that God's promise that he made in Deuteronomy 25 and in Exodus 17 has come to pass. Now you think about it for a second from the Jewish perspective here. The events of Esther occur about a thousand years after God made the promise to Moses. A thousand years it took for this prophecy to come to pass. Sometimes when we are contemplating the promises of Scripture as Christians, and we read Jesus or the apostles talking about these these amazing things that are yet to happen, of Jesus returning with the trumpet sound, of every knee bowing before him, of being with him in paradise forever. These these great promises of Scripture. Sometimes we have a tendency to maybe question them, to question whether they actually will come to pass. Now, we might not actually say that out loud and say, no, I don't believe Jesus' promises are going to happen. We're not going to say that, okay? But what I'm saying is oftentimes we might feel that way. That oftentimes in in our psyche, we're like, "Uh, I just don't see how the world... How is it possible that the world today and all of its filthiness and all of its sin, all of the the, the people, how is it that all of them will bow the knee to Christ one day? And the reason for that is because we live in time. We have to see God unfold history in sequence. This, then this, then this, then this. We live in time. We're time-bound creatures, and we can't think outside of that. 
But God is not just outside of time. God encompasses all of time. And so, as the scripture says, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. For God, when he makes a promise, according to his perspective, that promise is as good as done. Because for him, everything happens at the same time. But for us, when we see a promise of God and a thousand years goes by and we're maybe like the Jews wondering, God, when are you going to wipe out Amalek? It's incredibly encouraging to have this much of redemptive history behind us so we can look back and look at the book of Esther and see that God fulfilled a promise that he made to Moses a thousand years before. God is a God who keeps his promises. So that if he promises in the New Testament 2,000 years ago that Jesus is coming again, guess what? His promise is true. If he says that our sins were forgiven on the cross, his promise is true. If he says that Jesus is coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord, guess what? That promise is true. He will keep that promise. The promises of the gospel are true. The promises of Christ's return are true. The promises of his judgment and his reigning in glory and we going to meet him in the clouds and being with him forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth. Those promises are true, regardless of how much time is in between. You want to give him a 500 years, a thousand years, 2,000 years, 5,000, 10,000 years. His promises are true and they will come to pass. We have seen it over and over and over again in this book. That is something to get excited about. God's promises never fail. They will always come to pass. He always has kept his word, and he will always keep his word to us. And we can have firm, 100% trust and security in the promises that God has offered to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh God, we rejoice this morning that you are a promise-keeping God and we are a promise-breaking people. Lord, we often fail to keep our word. We often fail to keep our promises. Our earthly fathers often fail to keep promises. And that's where we contrast ourselves or our earthly fathers or whoever else with you, our true, eternal, heavenly father. You are not like us. You keep your promises. You keep your promises to Adam and Eve that you would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. You've kept your promises to Abraham that one day, through him, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Lord, you kept your promise to Moses saying that you would wipe out Amalek And, oh, God, we think now of the promises that we have in Christ. Oh, God, when we are tempted to doubt them, when we are tempted to wonder if they're true, or when we get so swallowed up by the events of our present age and this minuscule part of history that we forget to see the big picture of what you're doing, 
Oh God, we pray that you would draw us to your word and draw us to the promises that we have in Christ. Your promises are true. You keep them. Work that truth not only into our intellects this morning, but work it deep into our hearts and into our consciences so that every which way we turn, we are confronted with the promises that you offer to us. Oh God, we rejoice that you're a promise-keeping God this morning. Work that in us, we pray, in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning, our hymn of response, is number 252, When I Survey the Wonders Cross, number 252. Please stand as we sing together.